Welcome to the second season of the Duck Industry Podcast. Like in 2020, the podcast was realized in collaboration with the What's Up with Docs podcast and the programmers of Color Collective. Join us for discussions on topics such as the limited representation of brown LGBTQ plus stories in the cinematic space, the lack of inclusivity in the mainstream press, and the possibilities of Caribbean avant-garde cinema. The Doc Industry Podcasts are funded by Creative Europe, the City of Leipzig, MDM, and BKM. Thank you to our partners and collaborators for their contribution. Enjoy! Looking from the South. In 2015, a hashtag forever changed the face of the Oscar Academy in the United States, Oscar So White. Because that year, major nominations were entirely white, a claim for more diversity and inclusion led to the massive entry of new members, including international ones. In line with this, we are delighted to introduce you to three Academy members who share a common love and dedication for documentary and Africa. The Egyptian filmmaker and producer Jihan El-Tari, who is also the director of Docsbox, an institution based in Berlin that supports documentary filmmakers from Africa and the Arab world since 2014. Hello. Hello. The Cameroonian filmmaker and producer Jean-Marie Tenot, who launched a training session entitled Patrimoine Heritage, which took place in Bonjun Station in 2017, in Bangulap in 2018, and currently in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Hello, Jean-Marie. Hello, Claire. Nice to be part of this panel. And the Nigerian filmmaker and producer Femi Odubemi, who is also the executive director of the I Represent International Documentary Film Festival that he co-founded in Lagos, Nigeria, back in 2010. Hi, Femi. Hi, good to see you guys. Nice to be here. My name is Claire Diao, and I will be moderating this discussion on behalf of the Doc Leipzig industry team and the programmers of Colors Collective proposal. So hi, everyone, and thank you for taking part of this discussion. Thank you for organizing it. First of all, could you please tell us how you have learned that you would become an Oscar Academy member? Jihan? I think, yeah, I can, I think uh, was in uh, late 2016. So that was just the year after the event. I got an email that says, that said in my inbox saying invitation to become member of the Academy. And it had this orange big um, button saying press. Um, and I thought it was spam. So I, uh, binned it basically and uh two weeks later i got a phone call saying do you accept or not you're the only one who hasn't confirmed and i was like what are you talking about <laughs> and i said oh that wasn't spam can you send it again please so it was actually a very big surprise um And I think at the time there were very, very few. And I think it came to all of us as a bit of a surprise. Oh, Jean-Marie, yes. I, that year I also received, it was 2016, end of the year. And uh, I received a call of some people in the U.S. who said that they were thinking of 
inviting me to be a member of the academy and they wanted to know if I had anything against it or if I would accept. So I said, well, what, uh, what are we going to be doing? So I had followed the discussions about uh, representation in the Oscar and they said, yes, you know, it's important to be part of the group to make sure that uh, we are represented as well. And uh, I think that was the same year when Jian because that was uh, the year when uh, I thought you were three, the three who were selected that year on the continent. So, uh, and, and I, I yes, that was in, in the documentary section. So, yes, that's how it happened. And I was really surprised because I was not, uh, I didn't know that uh, my work was uh, supposed to be part of this Oscar thing and Hollywood for me, it was something so remote for my, of my concern. So it was interesting. And the part that I loved it about it was the possibility of watching as many films as possible. And that's what I've been doing almost every year things to be able to watch things from all over the world without you know moving from my my space thank you femi well um a, a couple of generations later i guess um it was in 2018 and i was on the set of uh, of one of the tv series i was making at the time and, and i got the phone call and uh Of course, I shut down the call because I thought it was some kind of gimmick and I really didn't believe it. Um, so I, I did call Jamman to say, look, this is what I, what I got. And he, he said, just chill, you'll, you'll get another call, uh, which is really what happened. Um, for me, I think I, I more or less uh, embraced it on behalf of many people on the side on behalf of the work that we've been trying to do for a few years. And um, it, just, it just sort of indicated a sense of to be seen um, that, you know, the sort of documentary culture that we're trying to kind of build from the ground up um, certainly have been helped by, you know, people like Jehan and Jean-Marie uh, who have made their way here. Uh, to make it possible. So I do think, you know, on behalf of uh, Jamin and, and Theo and Mackie and all these guys who have been incredibly selfless um, trying to do this, uh, it, was, it was really nice that our work, um, you know, was noticed. And that's the sense in which I, I you know, received it. I have to say that the fact that it was, you know, The whole story I said about it being thinking it was spam and not really having much time to decide. Um, obviously, I said yes, because, you know, one gets a bit uh, taken by, oh, my God, what is this? Um, but after the fact, I have to say that it became a bit um, wondering whether why all of a sudden, especially coming after the 
2015. And we had conversations about this amongst us. And it was, it was, we were really wondering whether is this a real move towards diversity or is it because of what has happened, then they just need names to put there saying, see, we're not just white. And there was a moment of hesitation there as to what does one do? It was more really about this is in any case, such a platform needs our voice. And once we're on such a platform, how do you get in and open up more space? So I think we moved from the idea of, are we being tokenized to the idea, it doesn't really matter if we're being tokenized or not, as long as we can open more space. So what do you think about the, the, the academy documentary selection process? Is it a lonely task or do you have group meetings on a regular basis? Mm. Who wants to answer first? No, yes, I can, I can go, yes. Uh, there, is, uh, there, is not, there, there are not really meetings because you have uh, so many films that appear on the platform and you have deadlines to, to cast votes and I make sure that every year I can vote actually. So I watch the films and, and I try to know as much as possible about the films. And I encourage people from the continent who have films in the, in the pro program to, if they have to do some lobbying, I invite other members to watch the films and to support the films. So it's really about making these films become visible and be seen long enough in the academy room and have people talk more about the film so that there is some visibility about the cinema that are not just a certain section of the academy or a certain section of the industry want to promote. And, now, and at the end, sometimes you are very frustrated because after all the work, you finally see the films that get even the votes, and you say, oh my God, how can this film, the film that get to be in the shortlist, and say maybe if there were more and more people from the continent and also from various parts of the world who are members of the academy, maybe there could be some shift into the kind of films that uh, get nominated and that get attention. Jehan, is there a feeling of... Uh... Uh, uselessness of watching so many films and not being able to decide which are the final. I mean, sometimes I say I'm going to be killed by film at some point because uh, I think I'm basically I'm on a schedule of at least two films a day, come hell or high water. But um, but I, exactly as what John Marie was saying, um, the process is you know you just. Uh, it's a very we're sent the films now they're on the platform when one first started I used to get DVDs and that sort of thing but I there's something I really would like to say about this because there is there remains to be a two-tier system because if you're living in Paris London or New York you can actually get to see the films in the cinema with the Academy um, members. And I did this once or twice in, in Paris when I was there. 
And it's a completely different experience. Um, obviously, it's only London, Paris, LA, and, and New York. Um, but also adding to what Jean-Marie was saying, um, you watch all these films, you put your short list, you go through the process, and suddenly the films that are winning, you're thinking, where did that come from? <laughs> Who's actually voting for this? I mean, I have been very dramatically surprised about some of the collections. And I, yeah. think, I think the most frustrating thing is that there's no way to actually find out how this process is going or to even have debates amongst us as Academy members once there is a shortlist. So, um, so I'm not entirely clear, I'll be honest, although I've been there for a few years, I'm not entirely clear how that actually, ultimately, the last selection, how that happens. Is it just accounting of the clicks, the lobbying? I mean, we all know that, and especially uh, as Academy members, we are bombarded, like bombarded being the, the understatement of the year of promotion of certain films, okay? And uh, the amount of money and the amount of communication that goes towards certain films, I think gives it quite an imbalance because suddenly there are certain films that you recognize their names and it really gives them an advantage. And so it's, it's the communication around certain films rather than the quality or the interest of the film that somehow I think imbalances the system, but that's only my opinion. Femi, regarding what Jihan just said, what do you think of the average amount of African entries? Do you watch, uh, do you receive a lot of African documentaries and do they have the same marketing power of the ones who bombard your emails addresses? Well, I suppose uh, in the last three years that I've been part of the process, I think the, the most significant observation I've had is what Jihan just said, the power of promotion the power of big marketing budgets, the power of the big studios. Um, so for me, the politics of, of winning is something that is, still needs to be addressed. Clearly, um, African cinema is at a huge disadvantage. And when I say African cinema, I don't just mean, uh, you know, I mean cinema stories from Africa, about Africa, they still somewhat, of a disadvantage, uh, at a disadvantage when you see how the selections play out. Um, even if it's a voting electronically, the numbers simply um, is such that with the massive promotion and publicity that the big studios and the big films are able to do, I um, mean, channels like Discovery and, and all these guys who have, you know, the budget to really push the film and to push their influence on, on, on members of the academy who vote. Um, I, think, I think all of that still kind of puts, um, lays the weight uh, to one side to the advantage of a certain kind of um, stories. 
I do also um, uh, look at it from this perspective. I mean, I, I used to get DVDs early on, and now it's all, you know, you go into your, into, into the platform. Um, it, it's, it's wonderful also to be on watch films, um, to also get involved with things like the, the mentoring opportunities, the um, storytelling uh, labs that you can actually help younger filmmakers with. Um, so for me, I think it's important that we, we also prioritize the opportunity um, to network within ourselves as African, you know, um, storytellers, um, so that the networking is not just uh, limited to our numbers. It needs to be uh, uh, widened, not just our numbers, but our influence. And I think the way to go about that is to actually begin to be involved in the many other initiatives of the Academy. But just like Jean-Marie, uh, you know, and Jehan have said, um, there is a sort of sanitized thing to the process where you're not, uh, you know, Jehan is only able to attend those, um, those screenings together. I get invitations to all those screenings, but they're in New York, they're in London, um, they, they're everywhere. I can't immediately don't, get up and they go. They don't offer plane tickets. No, of course not. And, and, um, it, it's also reasonable to understand that if, if the big uh, studios and those who push the publicity and promotion um, sort of do the numbers, putting screenings on my side of the pool may not really be particularly uh, useful. But there is a certain coldness to the calculations that is beyond the artistic considerations um, of, of, of the films. Granted that, you know, the ones that do get nominated, I mean, I've sort of tried to check, yeah, in the nomination process, yeah, you do sort of kind of see that maybe there, there were things that you voted for that, you know, kind of looked like it ended up on that list. But like, um, like uh, as just been said, the final winning one um, is always kind of weird. Um, you know, because you hear it just as everybody hears it. So I assume it's the tabulation of, um, of the numbers, uh, but clearly the, 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 the power of a big studio is alive and it's well, and influence is a key success factor uh, in the films that, that go on to do very well. So what would you recommend to small company that are eligible with a film, with a documentary film? For me, I think we, we've got to we've got to we've got to um, make uh, you got to lean forward and at least do the game of numbers. Those members of the academy that are within the continent that you can reach, and those ones that can reach others, um, if they're convinced about the film, uh, I think to just begin to actually not just sell it within the the, the, the network of the academy itself, but to make the right kind of noises about it within, within the territories in which we, we are. Uh, I have made a point uh, every year to sort of um, talk about the academy selections uh, at IREP, uh, just so that people go and read about it and get interested about it. And hopefully, you know, um, um, we create some kind of, uh, um, you know, a new cycle that allows people to 
to know that we're kind of interested in this, because I think that's also part of it that until, um, until, until, you know, filmmakers from Africa and of African descent were being selected for the um, academy, you had that feeling that, you know, the continent was really not on the radar in terms of did people even care if you saw the films or if you were, you know, um, inclined to be interested in the process at all. Uh, And I think that that, that's very important that, Yes, I I just wanted to go backwards a bit in terms of the actual eligibility process itself is problematic. It's problematic because it makes the whole system uh, pretty much a North American affair. Because if you haven't come out in North America and the rest of it, and so that in many ways, I mean, I'm not going to go through the whole list of eligibility, but I think we have to deal with this whole um, academy for what it is. It is an North American affair. And I think um, it's, uh, and we cannot also forget that it's not a festival. It's simply an award ceremony. And so I think that the, the clout and the visibility that has become attached to the name um, uh, gives it a recognition way beyond um, its actual filmmaking value, if you want. Uh, maybe I'm not being politically correct, but, but I think we have to call um, things by their name. And I'm not entirely sure to what extent us as Africans need to spend the amount of money necessary for the lobbying and for the doing everything necessary just to rub shoulders with those who are going to be there anyway. So the, the mere fact that we're present, that in in at least since I've been around, um, there has been at least one or two good films that have reached the final shortlist. So be it. Should we be encouraging people to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to get that label? Mm. Oscar winning, I would say no. But I also open the floor to the distinction nowadays between documentary and fiction. Do you think it's the genre is more recognized by the industry nowadays? Uh, well, before answering that question, I would just say that, uh, of course, there are companies who spend a lot of money, who make a lot of publicity. During the first years, I was curious to watch this film that had so much publicity and so much noise around. And most of the time, I was really <laughs> so disappointed. So at the end, I, re- I finally realized that it's not the quality of the film that make all the noise that they make on internet and everything. Because I was curious to see what are all these films about, read, the, and I was watching, and, and sometimes you, are, you have also have great surprises. You have very low budget films, sometimes from Macedonia or from another place who suddenly appear in the shortlist and you watch and it's such a wonderful film. And, and without having all this publicity or everything, it, it stayed there. 
and you have sometimes sometimes some French or some uh, that also are there. So uh, let's just take the academy for what it is, a place where you can just watch as many movies as possible. And you have the opportunity to just say, okay, these ones, we can push some of them forward so that they can advance. And when they are part of a short list, even the 12 or 25 short list, maybe they get noticed in various parts in the world and help maybe the career of these films. But to win, to be at the position of winning one year, well, I don't know. If that happens, great. I've seen some very brilliant American films, African-American films, and who went as far as the short list, but never made it. And, and just they're saying, what? How are we even going from the continent be able to change anything in this whole system? So I'm just saying, well, if it opens the, the floor for people to have the film better known and uh, all over the world, that's already a step. And regarding the fact that us member of the documentary uh, uh, section of the academy have can vote also for the foreign films and for almost every section now, that's really great because watching all these films from all over the world, you can see how the narrative House filmmaking, uh, how the challenge, the challenges of narrative all over the world are, are evolving. And really, when we are talking to younger generation, really to say, don't be shy, just try and do, try whatever you want to try because all over the world people are creating and bringing some new voices and everything. So for me, that's one, that's the only important thing that academy, the academy really brought to me to just the how do you say make people to not be have any inferiority complex with the stories and the storytelling uh, method or so so way. is the documentary genre more included now i mean i think documentary has uh, existed for a while um, but I mean, if again, you'll allow me just to, to add on to what Jean-Marie was saying, um, I think uh, amongst the things that makes me wonder um, is um, that you get quite a harmonious kind of formatted content. It's extremely rare to find a different kind of a voice that gets to that selection. And every now and then one gets really excited because I, you, you specifically talked about Macedonia and Macedonia, the film it was called The Honeyland. Honeyland, yeah. which was amazing. You thought, oh, amazing. But then I did actually meet the people who made it. Once they got into, the film started with nothing. The people started with nothing and it was absolutely amazing. But once they got into that machine, a lot of the money that they had to be spent was because of that machine. Now, that's one of the rare examples of a different kind of a voice. But I would say 90, because I actually do watch all, mo most of the films, 99% um, are the kind of typical structure format where it's safe. There's very little experimental 
you, I would even say experimental is almost frowned upon. And you wonder like in such a space, and again, I'll give a very good, ex- I mean, in my opinion, good example. And that is in, in last year's international um, fiction, um, there was this Hong Kong film that was absolutely mind-blowing in terms of a different voice, a space that was never seen, a real issue and the rest of it. And practically everyone I spoke to who is member of the Academy and even beyond the Africa uh, members of the Academy, there was no comparison. And then of course it didn't win. And what did win? The absolutely typical formatted, we know what the beginning and the middle and the end and absolutely no surprise, but it is more appealing to the masses. And and so I underline what Jean-Marie said, that we have to take the academy for what it is. It is a more um, audience-based, commercial space for films to shine. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with this, but it is not a space where new voices and different voices will be encouraged to rock the boat, I would say. Thank you that allowed me to switch on uh, and continue on what you're all doing separately, but in the same way. Uh, Femi Adobemi, you are wearing various hats, including screenwriter, cinematographer, and photographer. But regarding your position of executive director of, of IREP, after 11 years of film festival, what are your best achievements in bringing more attention to documentary within the Nigerian film industry and Nollywood? Well, you have to understand that we, we started IREP as a response to the absolute lack of any kind of understanding of what documentary really is and can be um, within the Nollywood uh, environment. Here we are in Nigeria where there's all this noise about a, a very, you know, burgeoning um, um, film industry and, and there was really nothing about documentary there simply because, you know, documentary was always in the sense that Nigerians knew it, uh, simply propaganda, stuff that government did. So um, for us, it was very important to sort of um, get with the task of building it from the ground up. Um, trying to build an audience is really what I think has been one of our um, uh, bigger objectives that I think we've made great progress with. Um, we've been able to um, attract to documentary um, a, new, a new, you know, and young population Uh, of both creators and, and audiences. Uh, we've tried to make it less elitist so that everyone that wanted to, to watch could watch, perhaps not always in a, in a big cinema since we don't have a lot of that, but we've had big night screenings at the park where everyone could come. Uh, we've brought filmmakers who, who are, you know, um, real artists in documentary so that they could show some of their past work, speak and engage with the student, with the, with the young people. Um, we've tried to just take documentary as 
something that um, was a tool for these young people to tell their stories, to, to, to sort of like, you know, document their experiences, but do it artistically. And the idea that, you know, um, we could provide for them training along the way to do that. Uh, the results of that over the 11 years has been that, you know, in our first festival in 2010, we had roughly 70 people in all. Um, you know, Jihan was one of those. And, and at the last uh, festival, the one before the, 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 the virtual, um, we had over 4,000 people over the course of three days. Um, and these are not wow. people passing by. These are people who actually intended to come and to watch different things. And we were able to now have uh, multiple venues, now have the Nigerian Film Corporation Cinema in Nikoi be part of it, now have Gothe be part of it, British Council. So it's become this thing that, you know, within Lagos, it's part of the calendar. Um, people can decide where they want to watch what. And I thought we were, we had a momentum going until COVID came and, and we're going to try and recover that. Uh, we've formed partnerships with, you know, the uh, Doc Fest in Germany, the German films, we've formed partnership with Africa, World Documentary Film Festival, just to sort of widen um, our selection process and, 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 and try to also show films that young filmmakers are making to young filmmakers. So they kind of see that it's, it's you know, very, um, it's a very good platform to, to express artistically. Because what we need to achieve is so much more. Um, we really can't stop. Uh, I think we're headed in the right direction. I think we're beginning to, to build the kind of audiences, not just in Lagos, but across the country, because now we do monthly screenings at different universities. And I think all of this together ultimately, uh, you know, creates a sort of um, environment that, that we hope reignites um, documentary culture uh, in Nigeria and hopefully in the countries near us as well. Thank you. Jean-Marie Teno, you're involved in many workshops and organizations such as DOCA based in Kenya, but regarding your program Patrimoine Heritage, what is the impact on your local trainees? Well, Patrimoine Heritage is very, is a young movement. I started that after being invited in 2015 by a collective of young filmmakers wanted me to come and mentor them into writing documentaries. And I was really shocked when many of them came to me and said, we don't really know what subject we need to, to, to work on to attract the attention of big festivals like the Berlinale or like Cannes and everything. So I was really shocked and upset. I looked around me. There, there are so much, there are so many things people can talk about, but many of, most of these young people were trying to talk about their own environment through the lens of what the big festivals or what people from outside want to see about Africa. And I was so upset about that, that I said to myself, I'm going to come again, but I'm going to train people, not just at random like that. I'm going to force them to look around them. And I thought that talking about the heritage, we're going to be training people to make documentaries specifically on material or immaterial heritage, so that at least they are forced to look around them. Because one of the consequences of the whole colonial brainwashing is to turn many of us around here as people who live 
in their own country as if they were just tourists, as if they were not, they were not even seeing what was going on. And really to challenge that is really to bring people to start looking at their environment and really grab it and, and really talk about it, make film about it, whether people, the authorities are happy about it or not. And so that's how we started in 2017 with the first edition. And everybody, wherever I went, people say, oh, Jean-Marie Teno, oh, that's trouble. We're not going to allow this guy to make his training because he's going to become political and blah, blah. I say, I'm talking about the heritage. So what is political about? I don't want to deal with politics. And, and I try, I reassure people as much as I could, of course, I know that heritage is very political. And gradually now they are understanding that whatever you do, anything that you touch and in you touch your history, your memory, all that is political. And now for this year, we had 45 people who applied and the level of the students who are applying are really so high. Most of them have a master's and really we are dealing with very, very interesting topics. And, and they are young. Most of them have, are around their 30s or below 30s. And of course, it's becoming a problem because people who are in their 40s, 45 are saying, well, we also won't have things to say. Why don't you open the training to older generation because we have lived and we've seen so much. We want to talk, to express. So it's becoming really something popular, but I'm just at the beginning. And of course we need support to be able to start something strong in Central African region, because of course cinema is almost as if with all the political problems that we have in this region, cinema have deserted us and many people who are organizing either the festivals or even the labs that are being organized doesn't seem to be people who are really speaking from within the communities. They are just seem to be people who are just being the, how do you say, the box, the address box of people from outside who have their own agenda and who are just putting uh, in place their own agenda to continue the same old system. And I'm trying with patrimony heritage to challenge that and to challenge that in a modest way because the first two editions, I was the only one training. We made 11 short films. For this time, the Goethe and the French Institute supported the, the, the workshop. And I have a French guy from the Atelier Varan who came for the writing process and for the editing. Someone from a professional from Germany is coming also. But next year, I'm going to ask them to give the money, but I'm going to select African professionals to come and so that we can continue the work. That's uh, the struggle, um, my, my fight, the fight I'm trying to pull for documentary and make documentary from an African and from African perspective. That's really important. So thank you for fighting for this. Jihan Al-Tahri, you were also involved in many organizations and as a mentor, like the Waga Film Lab in Burkina Faso. But let's talk about Dog's Box. How do you support emerging filmmakers from Africa and the Arab world? Okay. Um, I, think, I think let's start with documentary. And I think there's been a considerable shift in what 
documentary is, represents, how it's done, how it's assessed um, over the past 10, 15 years, a very considerable one. Um, and um, can't forget that Michael Moore with the documentary did win the Palme d'Or in Cannes. And I think that that's, that was a turning point, whether we like Michael Moore or not, that's not the issue. Um, and ever since there have been in the official selections documentary, there has been um, a kind of adjustment and, and actually um, just yesterday, the UNESCO published a report about the state of the industry on the African continent. And what I found very interesting in the report, that there's a, the, they, they started as like, how do we define film industry? And based on the shifts in the digital and the rest of it, within the same category, fiction, feature, um, of any kind and documentary are put on the same level. So I do think it's important to recognize that documentary is no longer the ugly duckling of the industry. It was always for a long time, I mean, like when all of us started, let's not count how many years ago, um, people kind of presumed that you do documentary as a springboard to one day be able to make fiction rather than recognize documentary as a language in and of itself. So I do think it's important to underline that we're, we've overcome this obstacle. When people who do documentary do documentary as a choice of form. And I think that's amazing. Um, so from there, we again need to say that the digital world has changed the nature, digital world in terms of production, as well as in terms of broadcasting, has changed the nature of documentaries fabrication, as well as its uh, access. So given all these different elements, I think one of the biggest problems today isn't the nature of documentary or the space or the audience. In, in my personal opinion, which what, what will then bring me to Dogsbox, is that the biggest problem is the narrative. And, 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 and in a way, what Jean-Marie was saying, um, are we going to comply to ticking the boxes in terms of form and narrative of what works for the outside, or now that we have the space and the visibility, are we gonna finally tell our own stories the way we want to tell them in whichever format we want to tell them? And it's, um, I think we do have the space and it is based on that, that within Docsbox, um, we have seven programs, uh, two of them, um, are really based on how do we break the format and tell the story from a Southern vantage point. So for example, Women in Docs, which is a nine month bursary for, for six women from six African countries, African Arab countries working together. We actually just uh, mixed and graded two of the films this morning, we spent the first four months of that program basically turning 
the way we work on its head rather than start of what is the synopsis, what is this and what is that and what is the treatment, turn it around. What is your story? Which vantage point are you telling it from? And absolutely every single person who participated in the nine months were people from the South. Breaking the format also means that a story is a story. You don't have to just be dealing with documentary filmmakers to tell a story. We can all learn from each other. How do you best reflect around how to tell a story? So we've had people from Jean-Pierre Becolo to Raed Andoni to uh, everyone, but it was a very clear decision that as much as we love amazing filmmakers from the North, right now, this is not the moment to be seeking that kind of help because the help we need on the continent, at least in Docsbox's point of view now, is how do you shift the narrative? How do you provide the tools of the voice. And so that is contained in how you choose the idea, how you choose how to tell the idea, how do you research the idea? And so the breakdown of the curriculum took us about a year to how do you invert that? So, and then our, uh, the other program um, we're in the midst of launching right now is an archive-based program and it's called People's Stories and it's only archive-based films. And again, it's one year in Senegal and one year in Morocco. And it's also how do you provide the infrastructure to translate, interrogate, reassess, what this archive footage is telling us about ourselves. Are we going to be reassessing it again from the same prism? Or can we take a step back and say, at this point, we have the digital means, we have the know-how, we have amazing people who you can call experts and people hire us all over the world. It's time now to look at what what is it that we are bringing to the table? It's not just a catch-up game. It's like, what is it do we have to say and where and how do we place we have to say within the grid of this global narrative? And I believe that we have a space there that needs to be taken and is being taken, actually. There are more documentary filmmakers over the past 10 years by choice than anything else. And just my last comment would be um, the actual opening statement of that UNESCO report. It says that the production and distribution of film and audiovisual work is one of the most dynamic growth sectors in the world. If you look at the numbers and the breakdowns I mean, honestly, you were just saying, Femi, that Nigeria is saying this and that. If you look at the numbers, it is totally impressive. And ironically, it's not Southern Africa and Northern Africa that we always regard as the most advanced, 
but rather it's West Africa and East Africa. So uh, I think that I think we're on we're on track. And that's good. <laughs> and that's why we also make this podcast. To, do you have a comment, Femi, on especially this topic, looking from the South, what the Southern filmmakers, producers, film industry can bring to the global uh, cinematic landscape? Well, a, 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 a worldview. <laughs> and I think that's really what's critical uh, out of what I think Jan is saying, which is really... Uh, the foundations of IREP itself. In IREP, we talk about Africa in self-conversation, about deciding what is our story, how do we wish to tell it, and then to access the platforms that technology offers to tell it to the world, not as a means of seeking validation, um, but as, as a claim to our 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 rights to actually a different kind of world. And I think it's our stories that's going to do that. Uh, so it's no surprise that, you know, the creative industries you know, are, are so, um, are growing at such, such amazing, you know, uh, in, in such amazing numbers. The access is, is there. Um, the training can be better. Uh, but for me, what I think is also critical for us is, reclaiming our archives. I think that's really going to be the key to um, us being able to tell our stories in such a way that we can track back and retell some of the stories that are being told um, about who we are and, and how we see the world. Uh, of course, that's really, for me, maybe the next thing is that as we are training filmmakers and storytellers as we're trying to interrogate the process and, and, and approaches to storytelling, we've got to understand that as much as they took the artifacts, they also took away the stories simply by crafting it from a, a certain um, perspective that we need to correct in order for us to be able um, to in fact recover ourselves, recover you know, uh, even amongst ourselves, how we tell the history, you know, of our country, who were the heroes, who are actually, you know, the villains, and um, how we got to where we got to. Those archives are not here. They're not, <coughs> and access to them is also something that I think is a critical war to fight, um, uh, that I hope that, you know, as we all acquire more and more influence Uh, we're able to put that as well out there um, as something that is critical to the growth of the kind of documentary cinema that would, in fact, work for Africa. And to fill in lots of silent spaces. Uh, yeah. uh, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, of, of, of course, I'm really amazed, even by the decolonial movement and all these. Well, when I look back at what I've been doing for the last 35 years, when I did Africa de Plumeray in 92, and all my work, of, of course, all my life has been to speak from where I believed I was from. And I did that all my life. And we wrote a book to go through the process that I, I, I went through because I was misunderstood for such a long time because people would say, what is he doing? And, And so real resistance is almost the story 
of my life accompanying the films that I've made for the rest of, for almost all my life. And now transmitting and going, meeting young filmmakers, showing them, them the films that I've made, other people who also have questioned the form, who have really made statements from where they were without asking or asking recognition. And by doing that, we are just showing them that critical thinking is one of the key things that we have lost in the whole colonial process and to decolonize their own way of thinking. And it's also very fascinating when suddenly I invite a white person to come to my training and the first reaction for the first week is almost like everybody seems to forget that I'm the boss. I'm the one who started the whole program. And they just think that everything coming from a white person is God's, God's word. So we deconstruct even all that to, to show that there have been so many people who came from the north, who came uh, on the continent. Sometimes they were incompetent. And they were celebrated, not because of what they were saying, just because of the Im image or the imaginary that was created around them. And so critical thinking, bringing people to really go back and question and question and challenge and find new ways of telling stories and learning about even the structure that are in the dances, the music, our music, and meeting people suddenly people who are in theater, who are working on what the Bikutsi means, what is the structure of the Bikutsi, what the whole culture, how, uh, what are in this culture. And to have someone who has been to Germany to study Brecht and who comes back and says, I started studying the Bikutsi and I realized that I didn't have to go all the way to understand all this about human nature because if you start questioning how women are dancing in the village, what they are saying, uh, the structure of their storytelling. I mean, you learn so much from when you start understanding the continent in which we live that is so rich in terms of narrative, in terms of humor, in terms of so many things. For me, being here and accompanying people to make their films about heritage, it's almost like I'm being born again and rediscovering even my own culture and my own country and hoping to tell stories to allow more people to rediscover and to find out and to be proud of where we are from. I've always been proud of who I was and I've been always a strong head, but now I'm even finding more gratification, allowing people to bring out all these stories. And, and I, don't, I don't care if it doesn't go to any festival or anywhere, and people will say, oh, he's saying that he's a member of the academy. I just say, well, it allows me to watch films, you know, but if you want to become a member of the academy, you make films, maybe you might be there one day, but first make films that really matter, that are going to be around for a long time because people will learn from your film, people will enjoy your films. And, and that's what I'm trying to bring to the younger generation as my duty and and also as a game, because cinema at the beginning was a game and a game that I enjoyed doing because it was fun. And I want to continue making documentaries and having fun, challenging, questioning, learning and transmitting. That's yes. My, my motto. <laughs> Jihan, final words. 
uh, with this title, Looking from the South, do you see more and more opening in the worldwide cinematographic landscape to the voices coming from the South? Yes, and I think it is growing. I just think that what are these voices seeking? Are they seeking prizes in A festivals? Um, unfortunately, if that is the case, there's only uh, there's ever only space for one or two faces there. And but if they're seeking as to what Jean-Marie and Femi and myself have been saying, um, you know, it's time for us to talk with our own voice, with our own aesthetic, with our own desires, structures. I mean, who said we ever have to and always have to tell linear stories? Our, the way we tell stories doesn't have to be linear. Um, uh, you know, we can, we can experiment alternatively. And I think my last word actually would be watch out for the digital. We think that the digital is a place of inclusion. It can be, but it can also be a space of exclusion. We're all very delighted about Netflix and Zoom and all these things that is making it more of a global village, but they can be a space of exclusion because the danger for me of the digital is that it's it's even it's spreading what the visual criteria and what the narratives should look like beyond borders and right now the control remains in the hands and the power in the hands of platforms like Netflix who are about selling stories rather than about making the world look at each other at eye level and I think this right now the digital still has spaces for all these voices to appear and be very interesting and uh, join the, um, uh, you know, the orchestra of sounds that we can all enjoy. But this space is closing. The digital space is being taken over and the African continent, only a bit of it that is chosen will be part of that and the others will be excluded, which is what happens in Zoom. What happens in Zoom, if you don't have the money to be on a Zoom, you're not on a panel anymore and you can be muted whenever somebody feels like it. Mm. And have uh, electricity cut and internet cuts. As Absolutely. Well. And so what happens is that, oh, it's going to upset the balance, take them out. It's fine. It's a technical problem. And the content of the narrative, the, look at something like the octopus teacher. And it's a wonderful visual regalia. But which African? Is that African cinema? Is that what Africans have, you know, are moving towards? But that is what is being celebrated. So I think we should be careful. We should keep our eyes open. There's space there. There's amazing things happening. And 
just be careful. Keep your eyes open. That's what I have to say. And that's a good end <laughs> word for the end. Keep your eyes open. This was Looking from the South with Femi Odubemi, Jean-Marie Tenot, Jihan El Tahri, a podcast moderated by Claire Diao and recorded by Anne Redfeld for the Doc Leipzig Industry 2021 with a special thank to Programmers of Colors Collective. Thanks to all of you. Thank you.